Hello and welcome to Conversations with a Conk. Today I will be speaking with Stefan Deliva. Stefan, as you will hear, is a Bahamian economist and an authority on blockchain and fintech in the Caribbean. He currently serves as the president, CEO, of the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance, where he advocates for blockchain technology and its adoption through the region. Stefan is also a co-founder of the Shift the Culture Startup Advocacy Group and the Arrowlink Ventures Business Incubator, both based in the Bahamas. I wanted to have this conversation with Stefan because, as you may remember from the first episode, we are rapidly approaching mid-September, and this is when the National Insurance Board of the Bahamas is projected to run out of monies for the Bahamian people. So Stefan is as uh, capable and competent as any to describe the harsh dangers and realities of the situation we face. And I believe he is the right person to speak to in coming up with bold, imaginative solutions to help us uh, escape this reality and uh, possibly prosper as a nation and as a people in future. So. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and without further delay, I give you Stefan Deliva. Hey, Stefan. Hey. How's it going? Okay, we're back. Pretty good, pretty back. Wow, pretty good. <laughs> oh, that's cool. I'll edit this because we sound like a bunch of dorks. <laughs> totally. Well, maybe I'll, maybe I'll leave it in for authenticity. We'll, we'll see how we feel at the end of it. Um, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, you're kind of uh, the perfect person to have on right now. Um, you, as I, I've introduced you in the in the intro, mm -hmm. you are uh, one of the nation's uh, leading economists and experts on fintech, which is some sort of of financial technology i'm assuming yes yes okay and you are also the president of the caribbean blockchain alliance mm -hmm. that is correct okay. so the reason uh, for perhaps for our international listeners or maybe any listeners who haven't listened to the previous episode episode um, the reason i wanted to have you on is because we are we are in month seven of coronavirus lockdown conditions, and we are peeking over the edge of an economic precipice. We are in the Bahamas, uh, a small nation, 700 islands, uh, about 400,000 people, and our, our primary industry is tourism. And in episode one, um, I spoke with Travis Robinson, a member of parliament, and he, and, well, this is common knowledge at this point, but um, we are basically geared to run out of money in two weeks. And by run out of money, I mean, uh, the National Insurance Board of the Bahamas is about to deplete its reserves, which means that it will not be able to continue extending payments to unemployed Bahamian citizens. So we basically... We've, according to Travis, we've run through about 10 years of, um, of, of savings in seven months because we've never had such levels of unemployment. And the economic reality on the ground 
is that uh, 80% of Bahamian citizens have less than five to their name. So <laughs> now, so it's not it's not a pretty picture. And, um, I just wanted to frame it, and I was hoping we could start by you uh, introducing yourself and maybe saying a, a little bit about what it is that you do. Sure. Um, so as you said, my background's in economics. And I, so I run the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance, which is basically, basically an advocacy group for the adoption and the use of blockchain technology, not only in the Bahamas, but also in the wider Caribbean. Um, so how we operate is we kind of split into two parts where you have education first, which is mainly in terms of, I mean, the long-term goal is to get, you know, blockchain technology education into schools throughout the region, uh, but also, you know, a separate focus on maybe software developers because they're the ones who kind of build the technology at the end of the day. So we want to make sure that at the end of the day, not you don't only have people who understand the technology, which is very important, but you also have people who can build and create these things and, and actually, you know, create new industries with them. So you have the education side, which we're, you know, actually in the middle of ramping up. And then on the other side, you have what's basically a lobbying effort where we engage with governments, regulators, other stakeholders to basically push for uh, better adoption of the technology, better embrace of, of, you know, maybe either local or international blockchain companies to operate and to have better you know, laws and regulations surrounding the industry in the Caribbean. So it's basically, okay. yeah. And it's basically a, a way where, where it kind of interacts with each other, where, um, so obviously to, th this is, at the end of the day, this is new technology. This is new groundbreaking technology and we need people to understand what it is. So the advocacy side will pretty much work with the education side because they have to go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. So uh, question, why should, uh, why would the Bahamian government or the Bahamian people even care about this technology when everything we do works fine as it is? Does it though? No, <laughs> but. <laughs> I, 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 beg to, I beg to joke in there. <laughs> But no, it's a good question, though. It's the fact is blockchain kind of opens up a lot of opportunities, a lot of potential for us to do things in a completely different way than we've done before. So obviously, uh, I'm sure a lot of people already know or have some familiarity with blockchain. It, it's a kind of decentralized distributed ledger. It's a totally new way of doing, you know, things from accounting systems to just regular payments, to distribution and interactions and transactions. And that can be kind of extrapolated. Uh, it can be extrapolated into, into, you know, both public sector and private sector, both for general operations, uh, maybe um, government product, not products, but um, government technology and just a, kind of a general upgrade really of the technology we use and the systems we use where you could kind of because and you would know but other people may not know our governments right now our government agencies are their systems are completely siloed none of them interact with each mm -hmm. other 
Um, everything's kind of separated. It's incredibly chaotic and haphazard. And j- just as an example, you could use blockchains to kind of very easily um, systematize and put all of those into one real uh, one real system. And that would greatly increase, you know, things like ease of doing business, just general operations. Um, it's streamlining it, really. So it would remove remove the friction between in the communication process between the various ministry or organs of government, and perhaps uh, create a seamless user experience so citizens better interact with their government. Yeah, massively, and it would do it in a much more automatized way much more automated way Mm, mm. okay and uh you said something about it being uh decentralized uh this seems to imply that uh this will uh take power away from the government is that the case and if it is what would be the incentives to government doing that Mm, it's a good question actually and there are so decentralization is something that's very important and i think blockchain is kind of pushed the idea and the you know the theory surrounding decentralization into the forefront but at the same time decentralization isn't a binary you know it's not is it centralized or is it decentralized it kind of goes in varying degrees so you can have and there are different kinds of blockchains like there are the you know the big open public as they call them fully or almost fully decentralized blockchains but you have some that are much less decentralized where they're much more what they call like private or permissioned and they're Mm -hmm. maybe used for certain small things maybe just a company that wants to use it internally and they don't necessarily have to they still keep some level of control really so if you have say a company or a government they can still benefit from a bit more of the increased decentralization but they also get so much more on the other hand um, in terms of like the, the transparency, the security, the automation, just the, the seamlessness of how it works. So okay. there's not that. So obviously it depends on how you structure it, but you can do it in a way where they don't, because obviously governments want to keep power at the end of the day, but you can do it where they still have a lot of control over what happens in you know, their own maybe private blockchain. Okay. Well, I mean, that, that fits with the stated purpose of this government. This government campaign on um, being one of the most transparent administrations in history. Um, I believe they campaigned on uh, bringing in the Freedom of Information Act. So, I mean, that's, um, that's one of the reasons uh, that I'm a big fan of this administration. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, it's funny, going on social media, a lot of people complaining about this government but i feel like everyone has the memory of a goldfish because they're they're forgetting literally the last administration basically what bankrupted us and sent us back down to credit rating it's true uh and you know i don't want to get into particular politics too much but i i definitely think the goal really is to kind of put these systems in place where it doesn't even matter who the administration is you will always have mm-hmm. some level of transparency. So I'll give you a, a kind of interesting example. So in China, where things are obviously much more centralized, um, mm-hmm. government has a lot more control. There have been instances of, of people using blockchains to just kind of uh, 
ascribe messages into them. And it, it's kind of hard to explain, but you can basically send transactions via blockchains that have, you know, just maybe some kind of text or some kind of message in them. Um, but that way, because blockchains are mostly immutable, um, as in they can't be changed or edited, and they are long lasting, basically into <laughs> ad infinitum, you, there have been, there have been some, uh, Basically, people have taken things where maybe they're rebelling in some kind of way or or um, it, it's kind of an anti-censorship. It's kind of a censorship proof system as well. So you can kind of put things out there mm. where so if, if it's a freedom of information kind of activity, you can put it into the actual blockchains and then nobody would be able to turn around and say, oh, we don't want that out there. There's literally nothing you can do about it. So it's kind of a, mm, mm-hmm. I, I actually, I think probably the most important aspect of blockchains overall, you know, in an international kind of global way is the censorship resistant aspect of it. Mm, that's really important uh, in an age where governments are, uh, at least on the world stage, uh, appear to be increasingly tyrannical. Uh, what you just said reminds me of um, the, the saying, uh, the internet is written in ink, not pencil. So uh. This is, a, this is, this is a, a good example of that. So we're, uh, yes, we're, we've, we've framed out the situation we're in. Um, the reason I wanted to speak to you, because um, I have a personal belief that uh, these cryptocurrencies and blockchain technologies and just technology in general uh, could solve our issues. Can, um, as I was wondering, as an economist, could you perhaps um, maybe dig into a, a little into um, the Bahamian economy and really, maybe I mean, maybe just a little backstory on it. What what is the situation that we're in? Because uh, the Bahamian economy, it's it's not an economy like most other economies. It's it, it's it's very it's unique in many ways. Um, could you could you dig in a, a little into that? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, <laughs> we might get a bit controversial, but the Bahamian economy is, is kind of in a situation where, and it pretty much always has been really, where we don't have much of an economy to begin with. So we've created um, this fully, this full focus on tourism, really, which, to be fair, has been fairly good for us over the years and at least um nominal dollar value sense but mm-hmm. it's also been entirely problematic in other ways biggest example the fact that we're so reliant on it that whenever it declines for whatever reason um basically the whole economy kind of dies as a result of it so and thankfully we've also always had this kind of finance so so we're also uh financial services somewhat of a hub um Mm -hmm. but unfortunately that's also been pretty much on the decline in the last mainly in the last few years but even in the last couple decades i'd say so it's kind of an issue where if anything affects tourism we all fall because of it and then our our main backup really is also kind of on the decline so we're in this very weird situation where 
we pretty much have nothing in 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 this circumstance because people aren't coming in. We're not getting um, tourists to a large degree, and so we have nothing. A lot of people are unemployed, and at the same time, there are no um, there's no foreign reserves, no foreign currency coming in in general to prop up, you know, our dollar. So it's mm-hmm. a whole bundle of issues tied into one, and it's not a secret. We've we've known for a long time that we should push to basically to, to diversify our economy, but we've never done so because it's difficult and we're not good at doing difficult things. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say this, um, not keeping all your eggs in the basket. That seems like one of the things that uh, most parents will teach their children um, when, when, when they're very, very young. Don't rest all your hopes on one, you know, sort of one, one avenue. Right. Um, it seems it seems uh, it seems economically foolish, but I guess uh, I guess uh, nature always takes the entropically cheapest path. Maybe we just we do this because it's easy. And, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. So you said something interesting there. Um, you said you said something about uh, our our currency um, being uh, pegged to uh, the American dollar. Yes. So we have a one-to-one peg. Um, I guess I'll go into that. So we basically... Yeah, how, how, how does this work? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. It, so we have so we have a Bahamian dollar that is equal to the US dollar when we're inside the country. But it's basically worthless when you're outside the country. So what that means is, is you know, we have our own national dollar. We, I mean, and and it's not, we we didn't make it equal, sorry, it didn't become equal to the dollar just by circumstance. We made it so we created the peg, um, basically so that... Intelligent, intelligent design. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But, um, so how it works is, is that we have this peg and whenever people come down, again, because our main industry is tourism. One, it's easy for them to just kind of uh, use what they have, um, maybe trade into our dollar if necessary. There's not particularly any reason because we accept U.S. dollars, but sometimes people still want to. So it's it's very easy to just kind of interact and and buy and sell and whatnot. Um, Mm. And that kind of creates just an easy network, an easy trade situation. And it also means that for us, we can also give our money back, obviously, locally. But, you know, the banks also, you know, they respect it. So when we need to travel, when we need to go elsewhere, we get U.S. dollars or what have you at typically good rates because of this peg. And it, 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 it's been good to us. But it also means that it creates this weird situation where we always have to have a specific amount or at least a, a favorable amount of US dollars or other foreign currency in our reserves at all times just to back the peg really. Mm-hmm. What, uh, so uh, just so the Minister of Finance, I remember six months ago, uh, came out with a statement saying uh, there was no, no fear of running out of foreign currency reserves. What, what happens when we run out of US dollars? Yeah. So we've never, at least 
as far as I know, we've never had a, a real long-term situation of running out. But because this is such a, a weird circumstance where almost nobody's coming in, almost no foreign currency is coming in. So those reserves are, are stagnant. There's nothing being added to them. So as, as, and we still have to use those reserves for so many things. They're used for international trade. We still use it for, you know, if we need to buy oil, for example. Um, we use it for debt and interest payments. So regardless of what's happening, those funds will continue to be, to be depleted, especially as our government has to, you know, fund so many things right now. And if, hopefully it doesn't, but <laughs> if those funds run out, then we have nothing to back our peg, which means that we basically will end up having to force devaluation of our dollar, which would not be a great thing. Yeah, so um, we're currently, well, I'm not even sure about currently, but we're one of the richest countries in the Caribbean, um, at least per capita. Mm-hmm. So if we run out of foreign currency uh, reserve, uh, our standing as the number one economy in the Caribbean might uh, deteriorate. Oh, I mean, everything will deteriorate, honestly. Um, because, and that's mainly because we import just about everything. I think, I think even food-wise or just goods in general, it's about 95% of the things that we consume are imported. So if we have to devalue our dollar for any reason, then just imagine how that kind of affects our imports. We automatically have less value in, you know, our bank accounts, in our government accounts. And for us to continue going in the same way where where we're importing anything, it's like you automatically lose a chunk of your money and you still have to pay the same amounts. (laughs) Uh, uh, Mm -hmm. So have to buy, sorry, you still have to buy the same amounts of things to survive really. Yes. Yes. It's not like our demands have diminished, just our ability to generate revenue has diminished. Exactly. What what hopes are there? Okay, so it's been uh, six months and we don't seem to have, at least to my knowledge, we don't seem to have diversified our economy um, yet. Um, what, what hopes are there that we can diversify our economy in time? Say, um, I've, I've heard some voices and I see voices in social media saying that we should um, be exporting more conch or we should be uh, you know fishing more or we should uh, convert large swathes of land to agriculture mm-hmm. um, what what hopes are there that we can we can sufficiently diversify our economy and um, generate the revenue we need to prevent a, a collapse boy <laughs> that is I mean so right now I would say um it's tough because that depends on so many things like whether or not we collapse depends on you know a balance of payments the same foreign reserve issue but also just generally the fact that we're so focused on tourism if people aren't coming in then nobody has work um and at the very least if no one's working then what the government has been doing is is trying to you know give out payments uh give out food things like that but again at the end of the day if the treasury runs out or the foreign reserves run out, then you can't do anything anymore. So when it comes to diversification, 
in the short term, it's very, very difficult to do anything, really. In the long term, there's a lot of things we could do. But right now, it's, it's a bit tough. Right, right, right. So the, 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 the time to um, diversify was 10 years ago. <laughs> Basically. Not, uh, not, not when we're bankrupt and 80% of Bahamians are in poverty. Yeah, that, that, that pretty much covers it. And I mean, I don't know how, oof, how easy it would be to, you know, convert half of what we do into agriculture, but it is, and I, and I fully believe, like, I think uh, just reducing our imports would go such a long way. I think um, pushing for more agriculture, pushing for more like uh, farmer co-ops, just more food production, even, uh, even, um, community gardens community um food uh gardens in general that that would go such a long way um into long-term diversification and and into long-term like food security and whatnot but Mm. and we can push for it now i think we absolutely should be pushing for it now but if that's not an overnight solution Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's uh, we can't, there's no, we can't grow enough cassava and mangoes to uh, pay off our national debt in the next month. That's not gonna happen. <laughs> right, which I think is exactly why our government has, you know, pushed to open borders at this point. It's probably, mm-hmm. it's probably a necessity. Really, it's it's, sur- uh, I don't know, it, it, it's survive or die at this point, and we'll see what happens. Mm. Should be the motto of the uh, Bahamian government. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. <laughs> Basically, so it, it's not a pretty situation, and there's not there's nothing that can easily solve it either. It's kind of we'll do what we mm. can, and hopefully, at least we'll take the right steps. Um, and like I said, I think agriculture will go such a huge way if we actually start focusing on it a bit more strongly. Um, the other thing is probably more, well, well, reducing our fossil fuel reliance, not only for the obvious reasons of like climate change affecting us, but also because that affects our, our money, our, um, foreign reserves to such a large degree because of, of how we get fossil fuels. We have to buy it and we have to buy it with foreign currency. Yeah, I believe it's a, is it $4 billion a year, a third of our GDP that goes towards fossil fuels purchase? Yeah, that's, that's, that sounds absolutely right. Yeah, yeah, I've been, uh, I've been curious about that statistic for a while, because, you know, if you, you think about that, over, over a 10-year period, that's $40 billion, which uh, I don't know the numbers offhand, but I think that would go a, a long way to um, creating a renewable energy grid. Massively. And I mean, and here's again where we get into decentralization because we have outside of Freeport, we have one main electricity company and, you know, there's no competition and their decisions affect everybody. And unfortunately, this government, for multiple reasons that I won't get into, has pushed so strongly against the adoption of renewable energy over the last few decades that now we're in the situation where, where we're in so many problems. We have no real diversity of any, of any kind of, of power and energy, and we're fully reliant on this one company. 
And when it goes, we all suffer for it. And at the same time, because they haven't embraced renewables of any kind, we are fully relying on on still dirty fossil fuels. And there's no sense of, you know, other than some of the wealthier folks, no real, uh, uh, sorry, solar panels, wind, anything like that. So it, it, it's it's something that we should have done a long time ago that we haven't, and hopefully we realize this and move forward into that. Yeah, I, I will have to give the government credit where it's due. This, this administration seems to be uh, putting a little bit more effort into renewable generation schemes on uh, the family island. Yes, absolutely. I've seen them. And I, I definitely will say that they're pushing forward. I'm thankful for it. But we need to make sure that's a sustained uh, activity and not just a one-time thing. We have to continue making sure that happens. So we have, um, let's see, uh, we have this uh, strange currency. We have some sort of imaginary uh, Bahamian currency, uh, which uh, the way you described it, it's almost like what, where, where you enter a festival and you trade in your dollars when you come in and they give you sort of Disney dollars so that you can spend them. And if, if you want to leave, they're useless. So you better trade them before you leave. And then we also, um, per your description, we seem to have uh, some sort of imaginary economy as well, um, which is um, leading us down the road to all these problems that we're experiencing uh, through the... the we haven't we simply haven't hedged haven't um, hedged our bets enough um let me ask you a question uh cryptocurrency which is basically uh i mean as i think a lot of people think it's magic internet money how is more imaginary stuff going to sol- get us out of the problems that were created by imaginary uh financial objects <laughs> i mean it is magic internet money which is not necessarily a bad thing because what we have now is magic physical money. So, <laughs> but basically it's interesting because um, actually two things, actually the, the way I actually got into the space is that I read, I was already, I was already really interested in FinTech, but I read up about this blockchain thing. I'd, I had heard about Bitcoin a few years earlier, but I never really, I never really thought it, it it was something I really need to pay pay attention to, but it wasn't until about 2015 I started looking into blockchain as like an extension of fintech, and mm. actually read a paper from two two former central bankers in Barbados, um, Jeremy Stephen and, and Winston Moore, and they actually wrote saying that you know this this Bitcoin thing is could potentially be really good for not just you know the national economy but the global economy and that central banks and governments should hold it as a hedged asset and and this is back in 2015 i don't remember what the price was but i mean if any any central bank had you know actually listened to that they would all be in a much better financial situation than they than they are now um but going back to the idea of, of what this is and what this money is, I mean, it's the fact that all money is fake, all money is imaginary, and all you do is take the prescribed value of it and 
all money really relies on is, is scarcity and consensus at the end of the day. So you have like, you have gold, for example, which is obviously physically scarce. You have dollars, which are not particularly scarce because governments can print them, but only governments can print them. So you still have this kind of legal scarcity at the end of the day. And Bitcoin... Quick, 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 quick question on that. Mm -hmm. um, so as, as we see when we look at America, America has printed what? The Federal Reserve has printed something like $8 trillion this year Yeah. to, uh, to hedge against. Why can't... So I'm assuming the Bahamian government can't do that. No, and that's particularly because we use a peg system. If we didn't, we could. Um, mm -hmm. But the, what we've decided to do with our dollar is we just attach it to the US one. So we really don't, it's kind of like um, how the, how Europe works, how the Eurozone works, where the smaller countries don't really have any say on what happens with the dollar. Mm -hmm. um, and that that's, that's actually what mainly how Greece got in such a bad situation that they were in where where they should have probably devalued their own currency like it, things were so bad that that may have actually been better long term they couldn't because mm. they were using a euro um, and it, we, we kind of are in the same position where we can't really engage in monetary policy because we are completely tied to the US dollar which means that how our money works is basically what our money's value is, is tied to them. And we kind of just do what they do. Or we, uh, uh, yeah. Question. This is, if, if the USA prints um, $8 trillion, should, do we get to expand our economy in proportion to that? Because it seems like they're sort of rigging the system. They're injecting uh, a large um, amount of currency into a closed system, right. which, I mean, that, that in effect, that kind of dilutes our dollar. In effect, yeah, it does, because our dollar is just tied to them at the end of the day. But then at the same time, you also have to think of how, how this kind of, like how quantitative easing works, how inflation works. And I think one of the biggest things that we've, we're seeing and that we've been seeing since the last crisis, um, when they really pushed on quantitative easing, is that if, if the money is all basically going to the financial sector, um, it's just going into banks, but this money isn't flowing into the actual real economy, then mm -hmm. at the end of the day, the real effect is, is, is minimal. There's almost no full effect, which, which is actually why as much as they've been printing, you haven't seen much inflation in the U.S. economy, mm -hmm. um, at least for the you know, the main kind of industries just because you've seen massive asset inflation. And that's because the money's gone almost completely into the financial sector and the financial system. But into the real economy, there's not been that much um, difference. And people aren't actually getting any, you know, any wealthier. They're actually getting poorer because all that money is going yeah. into one particular place. Yeah, I was going to say um, only 1.5 trillion of that money actually went to U.S. citizens and the other, um, the remainder went into, um, I guess, uh, asset inflation, as you, as you say. So my guess is, I mean, I'm no economist, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, but my guess is that the reason we haven't seen any inflation 
is because uh, the value, uh, all the inflation that we're seeing is an inflated gap in income disparity between the, the richest and the poorest citizens. Yep. And as we're seeing, that gap is widening massively, uh, especially during this pandemic, because, well, I mean, <laughs> they're still getting money. And most of these, like, especially the large tech firms, they're thriving right now. While, while mm. at least maybe, I don't know, 30 to 40% of people are unemployed and not creating any kind of economic activity. Mm. So what, we're, we're talking about crypto. We're talking about uh, these big uh, government pulling the, the, these big economic levers. And uh, part of me wants to say it's a blessing in disguise that uh, the Bahamian government can't print uh, its own money. <laughs> that, I mean, because right now it seems like they have full use, at least not this administration, but um, the, the last administration seemed to be pretty prolific with their use of the paper shredder. Um, and uh, I can only imagine how much damage could be caused if they had full use of a printer as well. <laughs> it, it's an interesting question. And I, I unfortunately haven't thought about that enough because I guess even me, I'm so used to us not being able to really utilize monetary policy. It is a very good question of, of, of what, you know, kind of a, quantitative easing here could could or would result in but you know the the christian council would be like what is that some sort of harry potter spell (laughs) nice (laughs) but no Um, i mean yeah i i just don't know yeah no i mean that's a that's a hypothetical we we could uh, dig into sometime Um, i'll definitely think about that some more so my conversation with Travis uh, Robinson, he estimated when we were talking about the amount of Bahamians living below the poverty line, less than $500 uh, to their name, um, he estimated that the income disparity gap would uh, treble during this crisis. Uh, and mostly because the, the key industries that seem to have been affected worldwide are um, restaurants, movie theaters, uh, maybe sports arenas, ever, ever, anywhere where lots of people uh, need to congregate um, for the, uh, the business to make money. And right. for, me, for me, these sorts of businesses are basically a, a microcosm, or rather the Bahamas is a macrocosm of a, a hotel or a restaurant. And um, what Travis uh, was explaining to me is that Hit, uh, the poorest communities in the Bahamas, the le- least economically developed, these are actually the, uh, the labor engines of the Bahamas. So the majority of these communities are, are the, 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 the laborers that are you know, making cocktails, folding sheets, doing laundry services. Um, they're providing all the labor to sustain this. So... I guess my, my question is, is we're talking on this um, a very high level of what governments can do. And um, what I was wondering is, uh, how do any of these policies benefit the average Bahamian citizen, the, the four out of five Bahamian citizens that are facing economic despair? Because if, if the government, say it, it borrows money, how does that even get back to the citizens that need it most? I, I actually think 
you put it really well just now where basically our entire economy is almost fully analog. There's no real use or utilization of anything digital or um, any real use of technology. And I mean, a lot of our, a lot of the local companies, a lot of the local, you know, restaurants, small businesses, they don't even have a website. So it's, it's almost a fully analog kind of system. And in times like these, as you said, where, you know, you don't have the normal type of interactions or people congregating in one place, all of those things basically die because there's no real way to get around that. So it's, it's, it's a very tough situation. And as you said, the, the gap is increasing here, just like in the US, because, um, you know, from middle class and up, most people are still working because they're either working uh, some kind of finance job or whatever, where they can still continue doing what they're doing, but from home, a lot of people working from home. But in, in the case of like the smaller businesses, a lot of people can't do that because it's not based on that kind of, of work. So just in general, that, that gap is increasing. And of course there, there are things like, you know, you have um, wealthier people have more access to, uh, global networks, um, global markets there. And I mean, the U.S. stock markets right now, again, there's this crazy asset inflation that's been happening over the last decade. Uh, and the more access they have to that, the more, you know, the more that gap increases because generally, you know, lower class people don't have, they barely have access to local markets, let alone foreign markets. Um, yeah, internet, so it's... Internet, internet. The internet is not uh, universalized down here. So it's not like we equip all of our citizens with internet or the education to use these services. Not everyone has the same capabilities. Otherwise, I guess they would be more capable of transitioning uh, yeah. to making money online. Absolutely. So, I mean, even I think a long term goal for us, I mean, outside of the regular um, diversification necessity, I think just increasing access and use of technology in general. Like even like if you th think about the guys who sell coconuts on the side of the road, if they had like a digital wallet, that mm. would, that would already increase um, how they operate in a large degree. And that's, that's, a that's, you know, low hanging fruit. Yeah. And not only that, but I mean, this has bothered me for a while. Uh, we're, we're stuck in a pandemic where uh, just uh coming into contact with other humans increases the risk of viral spread, yet mm -hmm. everyone is touching money and handing it to everyone. Oh, yeah. It, it, seems, it seems outrageous that, uh, you know, that was the, the first thing we didn't do was a switch to, to digital sort of scanning currency and send right. it to each other's phones. And to be fair, I know, you know, our central bank has been working on the sand dollar project, um, I believe they're pushing to have it done by end of the year. So at the very least that that would go a long way to, you know, removal of necessity of cash. Um, what is the sand dollar uh, for international listeners? Who might not ah, so it's basically a, a, what they call a central bank digital currency where you have usually a blockchain based, but obviously like a private blockchain that they still have mm. general control over. Um, Basically, it, it's basically a digital representation of our dollar. So, and there are actually a lot of central banks kind of pushing these pilot projects right now. They really want to get into it. 
because it just it just makes everything so much easier and obviously cash is problematic not just in terms of <laughs> cleanliness but it, there's a high cost to using cash so making everything digital where it's literally just ones and zeros that makes it so much easier um and it again it, it's blockchain blockchain technology that's really um pushing like breaking these barriers and a lot of the like let's say the us and the uk and whatnot a lot of these larger companies they it's never really been a problem for them because they've always had you know um payment providers easy kind of fintech even this like the banks are very very technologically technologically savvy and even the ones that aren't they're being fought by these like challenger banks a lot of these smaller fintech companies um but in smaller countries like ours that are less advanced we haven't really had that so for us it'll be a proper leapfrog frog where we're going from either just cash or even just cards to a fully digital um direct kind of access point nice so a sort of uh, economic sublimation exactly if, if, if uh, you remember your uh, your physics thoughts with gas <laughs> yeah no that's actually yeah. a great way to put it yeah i like that i'm uh, coining terms left and right here so <laughs> you should do this for yeah. a living yeah yeah i wish jesus maybe get uh, maybe i could get paid with some of that fake internet money there you um, go. <laughs> okay, the sand dollar is a copy of a copy of a copy. Um, let's, simulacrum. Okay. Yeah, it's a simulacrum. God, I love that word. <laughs> um, so we're in a situation. Uh, everyone's so our eighty percent of our people are um, out of work. Less than five hundred dollars. We're set to open up. We hope it's going to be uh, in time to not suffer too much suffering and hardships. Um, I we you, you sent me uh we, we both just watched the address the other day on the um the signing of the property and Elutra I believe it's uh Jack's Bay. Mm, yes. Um, the the sticking we haven't discussed this. But I'm glad because I wanted to get your reaction. <laughs> yes, my heart sort of uh, jumped a beat when I heard um, them describe it as a second Atlantis. Um, what are, uh, what's, how, what, what, what is this? Um, what, what do you think about it and how does it solve our economic troubles or at least solve? Yeah. Um, I'll try to watch my words a bit, but basically again, we, we've operated this whole time as a tourism country, a tourism entity where, our our main kind of established <laughs> method of 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 economic interaction in general has been these large massive resorts and what this is the, this this development in Eleuthera is basically another extension of that and granted i i will be a bit fair that this isn't new this is something that you know, the owners or whatever have been working on for, I think, around a decade. But it's just insane that it's happening right now because you kind of it kind of shows fully it, it bears fully that that we are still firmly entrenched in this kind of mentality where we just want to fill our islands with a bunch of resorts that hopefully <laughs> we think it's just going to bring all these tourists and 
that's it. Like so, we we have no other way of developing or no other method of developing our islands properly. Well, it's not an inability. Last thing <laughs> an unwillingness or yes. I mean I have quite a bit of sympathy with the project because uh, for I mean for me it's it's a necessary evil. There are times to debate uh, economic diversity. There are times to, um, you know, do the SWOT analysis of the economy and what we can do to improve our, our standing uh, globally. But uh, now is not one of those times with uh, NIVs that run out of money in two weeks. So for me, at least it seems like a necessary evil. Um, I, and I... Had, I, I... Uh, I see where you're coming from, and I would agree. With, I see where you're coming from, and I would agree with that. It, there's also the potential problem of, you know, if we still have to kind of wait and see how tourism in general is kind of affected after all this, and not only tourism, but also like typical things like people flying. So it it is still a gamble at the end of the day, even though it's one that's we've seen been okay. But yeah, this this kind of changes everything. So we'll. We'll see. <laughs> so I had a, and just because it seems like you were about to say the word, but I'm going to go ahead and just say, well, I'm going to quote Aaron Green. Uh, I had Aaron on the podcast last week to, to speak about human rights. Oh, and nice. um, we didn't get into it, but she mentioned the word. She said, um, she said, we're running a, a, a plantation economy. <laughs> Is, uh, <laughs> what does, do you, uh, agree with uh, her sentiments at all? Is there anything you can, you can say on that? Well, uh, <laughs> but yeah, no, it's hundred percent true. And I'd be, I'd be completely disingenuous if I said otherwise. Um, Cause we, as I said, we've created this economy that's based on, <sighs> I'm going to go ahead and say neocolonialism and where it, it's a, it's a service-based economy that's, completely service-based to where mm -hmm. the visitors because i mean you have simple things like you know when you go into a store the customer's always right mm -hmm. which ends as soon as you leave the store but when you're dealing with the tourism situation like as long as that person is there you kind of have mm -hmm. to keep that mentality and that could last for a long time with years. you know if they're there <laughs> exactly so it, it, it's definitely it's a mentality that that you that kind of leaks into every interaction really and not only into how we view ourselves but how we view um anyone else really that comes into the country or that we have to do business with for example it's not very empowering i'll put it that way i was gonna say it might even contribute to a, a little bit little bit of our uh, sort of xenophobia that we have Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like, it, it, I find our relationship with Taurus to be um, so, so strange. It's almost paradoxical because we see, I mean, and, you know, I, I've had my time as a hospitality professional. And um, on the one hand, we seem to depend on and love Taurus so much for uh, what they bring to the Bahamas. But there, there also seems to be, I don't know if I would call it an en envy, but maybe there's some sort of latent, um, I don't know, antipathy that we, we hold towards our northern neighbors. Uh, I, I don't want to say it, but there, there's, some sort of, there's some sort of tension there. Mm. 
So I've, I've never worked in, in hospitality, so I can't say for sure. You definitely know more than me, but I, that sounds absolutely right to where it's like you depend on these people for survival in a sense. Uh, but of mm. course, because of, because of that, but also because of like the mode of interactions where you, we are completely serving them and you have to dote on them. Uh, it, I, it wouldn't surprise me that it creates some kind of resentment at the end of the day. Mm. So, so, so in in the uh, back to the, uh, the property Jack's Bay, I noticed the big selling point was that it's going to be the number one um, living area in the world in terms of quality, but also it's going to be a, a private a private community. So it's yeah. going to be the best in the world, but also I'm assuming uh, Bahamians aren't really uh, expected to go in there or live in there. Yeah, unless they're, you know, maids or whatnot, which, as you can see, that would explain the resentment to where yeah. you live in a country that's like you're a citizen of the country, but there are certain places you can't enjoy certain things or may not even be allowed to go, which is mm. insane. And it, and it seems as if um, we're cordoning off more and more of these areas. Right. And, and and it kind of increases the worst of a position we're in because we get desperate and we feel like, and of course, we're not going to do the work of, of properly creating uh, new industries and whatnot. So we just say, okay, well, we'll just give you whatever you want. And, and to be fair, that's what we've done for a long time. And it's fully detrimental. And it kind of affects every Bahamian whether it's in terms of um, where people can go, um, property and housing prices, it, it, it becomes more and more prohibitive for like your average individual. Yeah, so I wanted to ask, how can, um, if 80% of our labor really is concentrated in tourism and most Bahamians are you know, maids or bartenders or uh, some other role in the, in the restaurant or hotel industry, how, um, and you've seen the prices, uh, the prices of uh, products in the Bahamas, we import everything. Yeah. It, it might be three, three times as much as America. And our, our land is even more expensive because we, it's such a scarce resource. Right. How, can, um, how can the less economically um, blessed of our citizens, which is honestly, which is 80% of our citizens, how can mm -hmm. they? Um, what is the route to them achieving wealth through uh, Powell in a resort for uh, wealthy Americans? Yeah, I mean, it's a difficult question, and I, I'd be lying if I said I had the answer. But interestingly enough, um, this pandemic has basically showed the world how how connected everyone is, and how much one something that happens in a country far away affects us too. Um, and just like what we were talking about earlier, it's that kind of uh, the asset, inflation, asset inflation going on in the U.S., but also in other countries where, you know, the rich are getting richer because of maybe stock market prices or, or smaller businesses closing down, making, you know, more space for larger businesses, et cetera. Um, and because of that, you have this kind of, like, say, for example, like, property prices in New York, property prices in Toronto, they're exorbitant and they've been increasing because of this like global asset inflation. 
and just in general, um, wealthy people becoming wealthier. And it, 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 and even if they're from other countries, they, you know, go into other places, buy property there, leave it there. Um, and that definitely happens there, which is why, again, the average person, it's very difficult for them to afford any kind of property. Um, so it's a yeah, lot of things that... We, seem to, we call that a rent-seeking behavior, correct? Exactly, 100%. Great, yeah, great use we, of the term. Uh, is there any way, how do we solve this? How do we, I, I mean, see, the problem I'm seeing is that the poorest of the poor get poorer. And yep. whenever we watch these press conferences, they, um, the words that I'm seeing is come and fold towels. I, I, it just for me, it, it's not as inspiring as it could be uh, mm-hmm. you know, as, a, as a citizen. Um, I mean, but, uh, it's tough, and it, it's it's one of those situations where a lot of things could affect it, but most of those things will be unpopular at the end of the day. So, for example, I mean, the government could step in and say, um, you know, we're we're blocking or at least reducing the amount of you know, property that you can own if you don't live there, for example. Um, mm. But that takes that takes a lot of guts to do as a government, especially when, again, we're so beholden to foreign money. Um, on the other side, on the on the labor side, maybe you could have more um, well, one more more labor organizing in general, but also more things like cooperatives where people are creating their own. Co- uh, small businesses creating their own industries together in ways that, you know, the wealth is a bit more shared um, and people are kind of operating in, in their own unit rather than as an individual. And I think, I think even just that, like, you know, the proliferation of co-ops would go a long way because we do have a weird, very American individualist mentality um, in this country. And it, it does not work for us. And I think even things like, again, uh, more more people on the labor side kind of working together to build, that would definitely go a long way. And it's something that they could do outside of, you know, foreign entities or, or, or government policies and whatnot. Yeah, that actually, that, that really strikes a chord with me. Um, I think American individualism, sort of objectivism, is probably the worst import that we've uh, taken in from America because it, it just doesn't suit our nature. We are such a, um, a close-knit, family-based community. I mean, even... Exactly. Also, I, think, I think the most churches per capita, we have large extended families. We really, we really are um, more... Um, you know, uh, dependent on each other uh, than in America. So I, I, I like your suggestions there. Um, and and see, it goes down to to um, really what democracy is at the end of the day, because if you you vote for a government, but that's pretty much where the extent of your, you know, democratic kind of interaction ends. There's no there's no democracy in the workplace, for example. There's no kind of real uh, ownership or decision making in, you know, the institution that you go to every single day and where you spend most of your time. So that's a very, it's a very important way to, and again, this, this goes back down to uh, decentralization where 
Mm-hmm. And I, I'm actually really interested in seeing what people create in terms of blockchain-based businesses. And I mean that in terms of like fully using blockchain for you know their organizational processes. But we can go into that another time. Um, sure. But that's that's fully like a kind of a mentality that needs to be proliferated, where people have more ownership, have more access, have more, you know, say in what happens on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I, I 100% agree. Uh, empowerment, ownership, um, sort of Jock, Jocko Willink style. Uh, <laughs> make us more independent. Um, it's the only way forward. Yeah, we're, um, we're coming up on an hour now. Um, I'm mindful of your time, of course. Uh, it, is a, it is a work day. I appreciate you giving up uh, your, your lunch hour for me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Not a problem. Um, is there okay? So, for people who are interested in uh, blockchain, crypto, Bahamian economics, uh, what, how can they get in touch with you? So, my Twitter is Steph Delev, S T E F D E L E V. Facebook, LinkedIn, obviously under my full name. You can also check up check out the Caribbean Blockchain Alliance's website, which is cbahub.org. So that's cbahub.org. Okay, cool. Um, thanks so much. Uh, if you, I just wanted, uh, if you had a few minutes, do you have time for uh, five super fast rapid fire questions? <laughs> All right, let's go for it. Okay, you can answer uh, in one word or as many words as you like. They're they're, they're fun and easy. I just uh, I like to end uh, a really long and depressing uh, economic <laughs> conversation with some uh, some fun insights into our culture. So um, nice. So question one. Um, click or sans? Click. Hmm. Mm, okay. I, I know. I know that's a bit controversial, but and if we're going in terms of taste, still click. Okay, so you're a fan, you're a, a fan of the more European style lager. I am. Okay, uh, Stella okay. Stella is my favorite beer, actually. Oh wow, you boozy. <laughs> okay. Um, question number two. What is your favorite family island? Wow. Um, Eleuthera, and that's because most of my families are. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's, that's my favorite island, too. I'm glad we uh, look, look at this gaining consensus, one conversation at a time. Look at that. <laughs> uh, question three. What is uh, your favorite type of conch? Uh, how do you take it? What's the best way? Oh. That's a tough question. Um, I'll go with fritters. Fritters. Yeah. Well, you, you really uh, dived down. You dove down from the elitist <laughs> tower. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm multifaceted. <laughs> oh no, that's uh, you're a true man of the people. And uh, for international listeners, uh, fritters are interesting because uh, the joke is, any con condemn fritters? Which is, <laughs> <laughs> It's usually a conch flavored dough. You know, yeah. you, you, you really, you really hope you got to know the chef because you hope they uh, stir the bucket to pieces so you can get an old dough. You got to go to the right places. Yeah, yeah. Um, question number four: Is the Bahamas a real place? Woof. <laughs> we are. Yeah, no, we're not a real place. 
Oh gosh. And um, you know, I, I actually don't, I'm, I'm not too hurt by that question because you're an economist and that is not a real science. I, absolutely fair. You know what? I, I've learned to accept it. <laughs> and I've, I've personally revolted against like a lot of aspects of, you know, mainstream economics. So hundred percent, right? That's good. Okay. Now that we've settled that um, <laughs> last question, question five. Um, this is the magic wand question. If you have magic wand and you can wave it and you could affect uh, any change nationwide across our archipelago, what would you uh, do? What would you wish for? Wow, that's a good one. Um, boy, there's so many things. So I'm going to split my answer in two if that's okay. Uh, actually, you know what? I'm going to do something different. I'm going to say proper regional integration as in you know more trade more just a better relationship in general with the wider caribbean mm, mm, mm. okay and uh, what, what what would you hope that that to achieve uh so i think in terms of the global i mean there's a lot of things right but in terms of the global scale that would make us a block really in terms of better not only better access to the global economy and and and, mm -hmm. and also better like maybe say trade rights um and things like that mainly because we try to do things unilaterally we try to do things individually and we get steamrolled over because of it because we have no real power at the end of the day and That's the more we integrate with the region we kind of grow in strength, we go in power, we go in things that we could do. And long-term, I would love to see not only that happen, but also a greater Caribbean connection with Africa as Africa grows in power. Mm. Mm. You know, I, I, I really, I, I vibe with that. It's almost like uh, joining a poker game, late game, and you don't have too many chips. Uh, mm. If we join with the uh, countries, we could bring uh, more chips to the table and actually maybe even last a few rounds before we get bullied off. Right. That's actually a great way to put it. Yeah. yeah. Hey, uh, Stefan, um, mm -hmm. thanks so much for coming on the podcast. And um, thanks for, you know, talking, uh, talking about the issues that face us and the possible solution. Of course. Thanks for having me. Yeah, uh, well, man, but, you know, what happens these next few weeks, let's see uh, if we run out of money or if we don't run out of money or if we borrow money or if we, you know, find some oil and extract it, you know, uh, I hope we can uh, have a, we can chat again and uh, maybe discuss what's going on uh, in the future. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> probably should buy Bitcoin. <laughs> yes, 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 I'll be coming to you for that. Hey, thanks so much, man. Uh, we'll, we'll play catch up. No problem. Talk to you soon. All right. Yes, I. Bye. Thank you for listening to my conversation with Stefan Delavo. I hope it uh, granted some insight into the Bahamian economy and its discontents. <laughs> um, if you liked or enjoyed the podcast, please share it with your friends and family. Uh, rating it high on your podcast app and sharing it um, is the best thing you can do. Um, and uh, I'd really uh, appreciate it.
If you have any questions or want to get in touch with me, you can tweet me in, at uh, Nassau Alex. That's at Nassau Alex. And you can email me at conversations with a conch. And I am going to get a shorter email soon. So thanks for listening. And um, uh, I hope you uh, tune in to the next episode. So I just listened to the conversation back. Um, I left it completely unedited. I'm going to do that for all these conversations. I think it's uh, just better if they're if they're natural, um, not overly produced. I just want to apologize on the sound. Uh, there was a thunderstorm going on overhead, and somehow it affected me, but not Stefan. But uh, by the next episode, I'm going to invest in a uh, definitely a microphone and uh, possibly a camera. We'll see if we'll definitely get better audio, but uh, also possibly doing a video as well. So uh, if you can, just uh, you know, subscribe to the podcast, rate the podcast high, subscribe to the YouTube, and um, yeah, I'd uh, appreciate your continue, continuing listenership and support. So uh, thanks.